Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript podcast. A quick note here as we begin that this is an episode cross-listed from our Biblical World podcast. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening. We've got a really interesting episode today with Andrew Lawler talking about archaeology of Jerusalem, of and under Jerusalem. And I also wanted to just remind you or let you know here at the beginning that OnScript has launched another podcast. It's a, it's a short series podcast, so we'll run short seasons on that. And it's called In Parallel, and it explores the relationship between biblical and contemporary poetry. And you can find that at onscript.study forward slash in parallel. And the name of the podcast is playing off the idea that biblical Hebrew poetry is characterized by parallelism. And it's hosted by Brent Strawn of Duke University. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, OnScript Biblical World listeners. Today we have an exciting episode. I am Kyle Keimer. I'm joined by my co-host, Chris McKinney. And today we're going to be talking to Andrew Lawler, the author of the new book, Under Jerusalem, uh, kind of the buried history of the world's most contested city. And this is a, I think, extremely exciting book. I mean, Chris and I have both read this. We're extremely excited about this conversation today. And I know, Andrew, you've been on kind of the the circuit as of late, you know, talking about this book, but some of the other stories that have arisen out of this book. And so, first of all, welcome. Thanks for coming on and having a chat with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk about this topic. <laughs> Indeed it is. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things that Chris and I, I think we probably mentioned it in previous podcast episodes, we are Jerusalem nerds, Jerusalem files. <laughs> we just love this city and the history, the archaeology, the stories that go with it. And so, you know, I know, at least on my part, anytime there's a new volume that comes out on Jerusalem, I I gobble it up. And this is no different. And it's full of all kinds of interesting stuff. And so, you know, we're just going to pick your brain about some of these, these incredible stories that you've been able to gather and go through archives and other things and really bring to the light in the history of the exploration of Jerusalem, the archaeology of Jerusalem. And we're going to hear some pretty fascinating things, I think. Chris, do you have anything? Yeah, to, yeah. I, I would just say that I, I think I thought the book was um, as a you know, to kind of color my my view of the interview. Is I would just say that, especially as someone who has done what you've done in other areas, and I haven't read these yet, and I'm excited to. But uh, looking at things like the lost colony of Roanoke and why did the chicken cross the world, uh, as well as all of your work uh, with the Washington Post, New York Times, National Geographic, and on and on and on. Um, it's clear that you have a, a wide range of of interest and interesting stories, and uh, and so I would say, as for, both for Kyle and myself, as people that were um, keenly interested in uh, not only the the archaeology of of Jerusalem, uh, whether we're talking about the bronze, iron, and into the early Roman period and beyond, uh, we're also very interested in the history of research that is. Uh, really like the you know, Jerusalem is like the Mecca of the history of research for so many of these characters. 
And I was just really blown away by how much that I had it connected before uh, in, in your, in your story. And so uh, in, in, in your book. So I, I would just simply say is it was, it was a fantastic read and very, very interesting. And so thank you for writing it and giving us this great material to talk about, but also share with students and, and give them kind of a go-to resource here. Well, that's great. If the two of you learned something from it, then, uh, that's success. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely learned a lot. And, you know, um, Andrew, I mean, we know that you have written, for the New York Times, Chris mentioned the Washington Post, National Geographic, Smithsonian, and your work has you know, been featured in the best of science and nature writing. You are contributing editor for science, for the for archaeology as well. These are two pretty, pretty um, prestigious journals that you're that you're working with. But my question for you is, um, give us a bit of background about yourself. How did you get into this world of archaeology in general, and kind of the the history of and and the past? Well, it was all uh, an accident, of course, as most things usually are. Uh, I was actually a reporter in Washington for a number of years, for a couple of decades. And at some point, I got a fellowship to, to MIT, a science journalism fellowship. And when I was there, I thought, well, you know, I could take any course I wanted at Harvard or MIT. And I had always been interested in Mesopotamia uh, since I was a child. So I took a course in Mesopotamian uh, archaeology with uh, uh, a an archaeologist there, and became fascinated and realized, oh my gosh, I'm a science writer. I could actually write about this stuff. And next thing I knew, I was on a plane going to Baghdad. Uh, this is before the war in Iraq. And went uh, about three years in a row, went to various conferences and met with archaeologists and really kind of cut my teeth on Near Eastern archaeology, about which I knew almost nothing. And uh, that was a segue into doing then more stories around the Middle East and then into Central Asia and China. And Jerusalem, though, is a place that I really kept my distance from. I did an occasional story, but it felt like it was so fraught with religion and politics. And I was really interested in the science of archaeology. So I steered clear uh, until a few years ago when uh, I was at a conference in and Israel on uh, Crusader archaeology, I believe. And I met up with an archaeologist I'm sure you're familiar with, Israel Finkelstein from Tel Aviv mm -hmm. University, who said, you know, hey, why don't we go to Jerusalem and have lunch, take a walk? I said, great, that sounds good. I got an extra day. So we did that, but I never got the lunch. Uh, we <laughs> ended up going underground and visiting innumerable sites. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, in the city. I thought I did, but I was wrong. And in the course of that, along with meeting these archaeologists and seeing their uh, their digs that were that were taking place, uh, many of them underground, uh, which is a sort of a unique thing to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that later. Uh, they they kept pointing out tunnels and trenches. They said, oh, Wilson did that, or Warren did that, or Bliss and Dickey were here. And I'm like, who are these people? I'd never heard of them. So I started doing a little digging on my own. And I realized that there was this whole fantastic history of digging in Jerusalem, and not just a history of science, but it actually was the history of religion and politics and science. And from the beginning, Jerusalem was a place where these three things mixed together in a very volatile fashion. And when I looked around, there was no book on this. Now, uh, Neil Silberman did a wonderful book called A Forgotten Country that talks about some of the early years, but I wanted to stitch together the history of, of who dug and why did they dig and what were the impacts of these digs right up to today. And that's, uh, that's what this book is. 
Great. And, and, you know, I think there's a, another just really important thing to draw out here because you as a trained journalist, you bring the best of research and the best of kind of the academic world and are making it accessible. And I just want to highlight this because this is something we come back to a number of times in our podcasts of the, the significance and the importance of making the best of research known. This, this is that you get a good read, but it also is well researched, um, brought together. As you mentioned, you, you spent some time with, with Israel Finkelstein along with a number of other uh, scholars. And I see Chris wants to, to bring something up. So I'll stop rambling. <laughs> no, that's I agree with all that. And one of the one of my big takeaways uh, from the book was that the fact that I had spent my earliest experiences in Israel digging in these same areas, and it was like a, a day and a half uh, where uh, I was going to a school just outside of Jerusalem uh, on an ex, you know on, on an extension um, you know for, for my undergrad, and we had the opportunity to dig in the city of David for one day. And what were we doing? But clearing out uh, Montague Parker's uh, dump of, of from a tunnel, and I was like, "Who's Montague Parker? What's any of this?" But we were actually doing it, um, and then so we I learned about all this. I think it was uh, fall 2005, and so it was when they were excavating the Spring Tower. It was when they were when Ellie Shukron and Roni Reich were all there. And what I've always been really shocked by is just how rapid the progress is from then till now. And so after leading many groups and spending a lot of time and research in the area of underground Jerusalem, as you call it, it's changed enormously in the last uh, two decades. And, uh, and and I can say that as a relatively young scholar in the field, seeing it firsthand. And so um, how much more it's changed in the in the broader and the broader sweep, but it's been a real intensity that you that you bring out in these last uh, in these last fifteen uh, years or so, and which I which I really appreciate. And I, I kind of like a, another question for you on this is with all of that. That that's what what I think is so valuable about this book is is that you craft it in a way that. Um, it, it's telling a, a, a larger kind of single story about the underground Jerusalem. But I m- imagine um, that there were so many rabbit trails <laughs> that you could take with Warren and DeSalsi and Wilson and all these guys um, that, uh, you know, it, it's just such an interesting thing. And so um, in any case, you, you're welcome to plug any of those kind of uh, rabbit trails if you have any of those. But I just wanted to commend you on, on, on that on that front and maybe even kind of lead this into this question, like how, how familiar were were you with any of these characters before you started writing this book? Oh, I didn't know any of these people. Uh, You know, I was at this when Finkelstein was showing me these sites and people were mentioning these people, they didn't ring any bells. So uh, that's when I I realized that in order to understand what's going on today, I had to know the archeological background. I mean, if I were doing an archeology span story, any place I'm interested in, well, who dug there before and what did they find? And uh, are people just digging in the same place? Are they doing something new? So it's always great to have that historical context, I find, no matter what site you're talking about. But when you consider Jerusalem, what makes this city so unique, as you know, is that that the archaeology is always intimately tied with the religion, with the politics, with the powers that be, with the money, uh, in a way that that really is unlike any place on earth. I mean, we're not talking about a nice layer cake mound or tell that's somewhere out in the Syrian desert. We're talking about a place that has been uh, fought over for uh, a good 5,000 years, because that's how far back the history of Jerusalem goes, we now know. 
Uh, I was just going to say that I think that's absolutely right. And what what's so crazy about the stories that you are discussing, I mean, it's one thing for us as archaeologists to go and let's say, dig the spring tower or dig one of these tells and uh, look at an ancient text and deal with all the complexities and come up with, um, you know, a reconstruction of that based upon text, archaeology. And obviously, <laughs> there's a wide range of how you can deal with those things. But but the stuff that is so interesting, and it really is almost like archaeology in itself, is that you are dealing with stuff that there is actually a, a paper trail to. There is uh, portraits of these uh, I shared I shared a, a photo of, to Kyle the other day um, that was taken from I think the Petra Hostel right as you walk in Jaffa Gate and it's looking right at David's Citadel and it's right when the PEF had just set up and so what you see is Christ Church which is just built and you see Palestine Exploration Fund which was their office and then right beside it you see the mission to save the Jews of Palestine and so you see all of these politics right. right beside it and in a place where likely Jesus was tried before Pontius Pilate I mean so it's it's just a mixture of, of all of these things that is so fascinating and and I think that um, what you do so well in, this, in the book is is you engage us with these uh, with these these sources that are actually pretty accessible, at least in the in the sense of they exist and you can touch and feel the the Ordnance Survey of Wilson. You can you can um, you can look at pictures of Charles Warren. Now there's not as many as we'd like, but there's still much more than you know trying to find um, you know David's David's wall or, or something in Jerusalem. It's it, there's a there's a kind of a flesh and bones to it that is really fascinating. Um, anyway, Kyle, I, I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, as, as Andrew is kind of pointing out that, you know, there's this old adage that you sneeze in Jerusalem and it's a political statement. And it's because even as we're trying to do the archaeology and understand the history of this site, it is a living city at the same time. And this is one of the things you highlight, I think, a number of times in your book is that bet particularly between Israelis and the the you know, doing of archaeology and Palestinian view, where you know they they now have an archaeological infrastructure in in the West Bank to a you know to a certain degree, but it's more about the living tradition, and you see this disconnect between the the, the uses of Jerusalem as a space and the aspirations for what it what is is being used for, and so before we kind of delve into that uh, even more so, I want to come back to some of these early guys and say, you know, as you were reading about these guys, I mean, what, what in your mind, and you, you touched on this in the book, but for, for the readers, what in your mind is some of the, the driving force behind these early explorers, such as DeSalcy, Warren, and, and Wilson? Is, is there a common thread that runs across here? And can you situate their stories a bit for us? Sure. I mean, we're, we're talking about the middle of the 19th century, and this is a time when the Ottoman Empire is starting to fray. I mean, this is a very large empire that for 500 years has controlled Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, the Ottomans based in Istanbul, of course, you know, they're, they're, they're Islamic, uh, but there are Turkic people, very different from the, the Arabs in, in Palestine. And so there are two things at work. One is imperialism. Because this is the time when the European powers, particularly France and Britain, uh, and as well as the German states and Russia, are all vying to control parts of the world. I mean, everybody's trying to create the biggest possible empire. And, of course, the Ottoman Empire itself was the, the largest, was the, the low-hanging fruit that everybody wanted to grab. And so Jerusalem became a place of entry because 
uh, we're talking about Christians here, Western Christians, uh, maybe Protestant, maybe Catholic, depending on, on who you were. But these were Christians who wanted to use Jerusalem as a way to, as an entree, to use it for spying purposes, to use it as a way to bolster their influence within the Ottoman Empire. So there's this whole political element, uh, colonial element to what is going on in Jerusalem from the very beginning, from the first uh, legal excavator who was uh, Dizalzi, who you mentioned, who was a, a friend of the French emperor. Uh, he was a military officer. So he's very much tied into the politics of that time, which was about creating empire. And the only reason he got his dig permit was because he was a friend of the emperor. And the sultan in Istanbul was really eager to be on good terms with the French, because by being on good terms with the French, they could hold off the Russians who were threatening the Ottoman Empire from the north. So, of course, when a friend of the French emperor said, hey, I want to dig in Jerusalem, well, he didn't, the, the sultan wasn't interested in science. He wasn't interested in proving anything about the past. He was interested in a good relationship with the French government. So he said yes, and this is the pattern that follows even to today, where, where any dig you can name has a political element. Nice. And, and you know, I think this this idea of imperialism that you just highlighted is, is so important, too. And when you read some of the, the writings of these early explorers, whether we're focusing just on Jerusalem or others that go and explore this kind of new territory from a Western perspective, um, you, you get a real sense of these guys. I mean, they're very they very much are imperialist and their their view of the locals is very negative or minimal at best. And there's this idea that we need to not only save this material, but we want to use it in some way for Christendom or, or the West. And so, um, you know, when I read these stories about DeSalcy and Warren Wilson, you know, these are characters that I've become familiar with over the years, but knowing their stories and knowing that they're all kind of major jerks to put it politely, um, <laughs> It was, it was a very interesting thing to find out because you don't you don't always get the the backstory obviously when you're just reading their academic writing. Yeah, they're 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 definitely all very fascinating and complicated characters. Uh, Dzalzi is you know he is quite the jerk. I mean, he <laughs> actually takes the sarcophagus he finds in the tomb of the kings, and despite the protestations of the Jewish community, they say you're desecrating our our, our ancestors' graves. He has it sent to the Louvre. Uh, with the approval of the Ottoman governor, who is in a, he's in an impossible situation. He, he doesn't want to insult the Jewish community, but he also wants to do what the sultan wants him to do, which is to keep the French happy. So right there, you have uh, the locals in Jerusalem being upset with archaeologists, and that continues until this day. I mean, part of what is so amazing about this story for me is that despite the fact that Jerusalem has changed more than almost any other city on earth in the past century and a half, so much remains the same. There's still the same dynamics at play. That's why I wanted to go back to the beginning and see where it started. So yes, you've got the imperialism, uh, the attempt to control and dominate the Ottoman Empire, but you also have religion. You also have uh, very, very devout Christians. Uh, Dzalzi was a devout Catholic. Uh, Warren certainly was a very devout uh, Anglican. In fact, uh, one of the rabbit holes I went down, which I didn't put as much into the book as I would have liked, but he was a Mason, a Freemason. And he was really driven by this fascination with Solomon's temple. 
So a large reason why he went to Jerusalem in the first place, why he signed up for this job that nobody else wanted, was because he wanted to show, he wanted to find evidence for the Freemasonry beliefs in the Temple of Solomon. And so right, right there, of course, you have trouble because, because the Temple Mount, the noble sanctuary for Muslims, uh, it's the third holiest site in Islam. So if you're going to want to dig on that spot, then you're going to run into some major religious and political opposition, which, of course, he did. So that's that's just absolutely great. And just to, like, bolster this point, I mean, I, I don't know if, if, Andrew, you've heard of the relatively recent theory to put the temple somewhere in the city of David as opposed to in the uh, on the Temple Mount itself, but it's the even i mean it, which is totally ridiculous but the the impulse to do this is precisely what you're describing because it's inaccessible and now if we can put it uh just to the south we can build a temple and then all of a sudden we can have a rapture uh, all of a sudden we can move towards um you know the the you know the coming of the kingdom we can we can make it happen and what's what's so fascinating is it's the same impulse that you see in the 19th century with uh, trying to reach the Jews for, uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the Anglican uh, movement there, and uh, particularly, among, particularly among Protestants. Um, and so what, what, it's just fascinating. Um, but one of the things I, I wanted to point out is what I also so much appreciate about the, going back to the beginning of this story is it, it really does start in the, in the 19th century. And what I found to be really fascinating is, yes, they are certainly multi-layered characters. But what, what really comes through with someone like Warren is just how incredible a archaeologist he was, a researcher. I mean, just in so energetic. And it's just, it, I, I've even spent time, um, you know, with, as you have with Josiel and others uh, under the, uh, an underground Jerusalem. And you're like, we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't take a, a, something like, we couldn't draw that. I mean, he doesn't have photogrammetry where we can create a three-dimensional model. And it's, and it's perfect. And so in the same breath that we should talk about the, you know, the, the time frame in which they lived and kind of the imperialism and the colonialism, as well as um, maybe whether we like it or not, misguided religious fervor, just the aptitude of so many of these characters is absolutely incredible. And that's so much why it's important to actually do excavations of their reports in other words, to look back and see what they actually did, where most archaeologists today will spend so much time on new projects, and that's fine. But to go back and actually see what they've what was done by Warren and DeSalcy and these other scholars, and and so what I again appreciate so much is it makes this accessible, and then it really leads you into this world of of scholarship that is often neglected. Uh, so again, I, I'm thanking you uh, and uh, and really echoing uh, what you and Kyle are, are pointing out. Yeah, Charles Wilson was, uh, I mean, for those of your listeners who don't know who he was, he was uh, 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 the guy sent by the Palestine Exploration Fund from Britain to map underground Jerusalem. Uh, and it, essentially, it was, a it was an immediate response to the French digging, to Solzy's dig in 1863. So within a couple of years, uh, Warren is there, and he does an incredible job in mapping what's beneath. I mean, it really is data that is, as you mentioned, it's still used by archaeologists today, in part because he went to places that archaeologists have not been able to go to since. Now, I should, I should, I'm hesitating about using the word archaeologist, because really, explorers <laughs> and treasure hunters, uh, as well as uh, people seeking scientific data. 
uh, back then, archaeology didn't exist. It was just beginning to become a discipline. It really wasn't until the late 1800s, I think you can use that term uh, in, in the modern way we use it. So Warren was an explorer. He was a mine. He had he'd studied uh, mining, uh, grew up in Wales, actually, and was a mining engineer. So he understood how to work underground. And he also did things that you wouldn't imagine would be done in a sacred place like Jerusalem. He used gunpowder to blast his way through some of these passages and chambers that have been blocked by debris uh, or by foundations of later buildings. And of course, this infuriated the, the Arabs, uh, uh, well, Jews as well as Arabs, particularly the Arabs who lived above, close to the noble sanctuary. So he used methods that uh, were, I would say, at best questionable. And even his tunnel was, it was this brilliant solution to the problem. The, the governor, the Ottoman governor said, okay, you can dig, but you can't dig within a certain, you know, several hundred yards of the Temple Mount of the Noble Sanctuary. So to get around that, he would dig, he would go outside of that barrier, that, that boundary, he would dig straight down, and then he would dig a tunnel perpendicular all the way to the walls of the Noble Sanctuary of the city's Acropolis. And I mean, this was a, a really good way to get around the problem, but it also made the Ottomans and the locals very suspicious of what he was actually up to, because he was doing this without permission. In fact, he was doing this illegally. Uh, so I think while we can really appreciate his methods and his data, which was really phenomenal, given the, the methods and the, the technology of the day, we can't we can't take that separate from the fact that what he was doing was uh, was really questionable, and it had a huge impact in making a lot of the locals in Jerusalem dislike and distrust archaeologists, which is one of the major problems today in digging in the city. So we're left with the consequences of those actions, not just with the data he left behind. Yeah, and what a great example, again, to tie together the situation today with the past. And by knowing the beginning of the story, we see the reverberations that come across. Now, I, I like in, in the, the book you characterize Warren as one of those guys who would have been a, an ex-game um, aficionado. He's the kind of guy that would you know, be you know, skydiving and whatever other thing. You're that the is first person climb the rock of Gibraltar without a rope. I mean, it's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. I'm going to use that tidbit every time I talk about going through Warren Shaft because he, you know, he goes up there and he climbed Gibraltar. He, this was nothing. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I like too that you you refer to these early explorers not as as archaeologists but as essentially kind of treasure seekers. And so on the one hand, we've got the political um, aspirations of those that are funding them and bringing them, but then they, as you pointed out, they also have. Um, through re researching their story, they also have personal motives. And one of the ones that shows up with a number of these guys is the search for kind of the, the granddaddy of all archaeological relics, the Ark of the Covenant. And obviously, we all know the famous documentary movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and you know where it is and how, how we can find it. But can you can you say a little bit more about the, you know, this as a theme that runs through so much of the early exploration and not even early exploration, but into the eighties and nineties exploration as well. What are, where are these motivations for this Ark of the Covenant coming from and why, why this feature? And I know this, this factors into Christian beliefs among some Christians. Well, uh, in fact, it's still very much alive and well. Uh, in fact, I just saw that Yuri Geller, who's the, uh, the, <laughs> I don't know how you describe him. Uh, a, a Illusionist kind of guy? Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. He just announced that he knows where the Ark is. 
and it is oh. it is beneath the Temple Mount, and he's sure it's there, and he's not revealing the evidence exactly just yet, but he knows it's there. So, I mean, what's really fascinating about this Ark story is that it it is it it can, it's continued for a century and a half, and it really was not an ancient. Uh, fascination. This is a recent fixation. This is a 19th, actually even a 20th century fixation that has had very little interest to those people in the past. Uh, yes, there were some Jewish Jewish mystics who talked about the Ark, but they tended to talk about it in a spiritual way. They didn't necessarily want to go go find it, much less sell it on the Ark market. But in the 20th, early 20th century, this character, Montague Parker, who Chris mentioned earlier, uh, he was inspired to pull together what has to be the craziest exploration team in exploration <laughs> history. I mean, so in 1909, he uh, hooks up with this Finnish uh, theologian, uh, kind of a sketchy guy. He's, a, uh, uh, he's got his PhD in theology. He's at the Kabbalism. He's Christian. Uh, and he believes he's cracked the code of Ezekiel that's in the book of Ezekiel that describes exactly where the temple treasures are hidden. So the temple treasures are all the great, cool, valuable stuff that was in Solomon's temple, including the Ark. Now, at some point, certainly by the time the Babylonians arrived to destroy the city in 586 BC, it vanishes. The Ark is not mentioned again, actually, in the biblical text. We don't know what happened to it. This was not particularly of interest to the ancients, uh, and it really wasn't until uh, the late 19th century, that this idea of the ark became this kind of Christian idea, this idea of you know, seeking this ancient Old Testament relic. So Parker sets out to find it with the help of this Finnish guy. And the team includes, let's see, you've got your Swiss psychic, uh, just in case the Finnish guy isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a uh, and then there was a, a this man, you, you can't make this up. He was a steamboat captain on the Congo River, uh, and an avian steamboat captain with this big curly mustache. Uh, involved for reasons. It's like a Disney movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got uh, a cricket star, of course, because it's, it's a British expedition. You have to have a cricket star. Uh, you know, absolutely essential. Uh, now, the one, the one figure they forgot to hire was an archaeologist. They even brought in one of the uh, chief engineers for the London tube system for the subway in London. Uh, which was you know, the peak of technological expertise in those days. So they did an incredible amount of tunneling for two years. And of course, they found nothing except for some pottery, which would, is of great interest today. Uh, what they found is quite interesting, but for the times it wasn't because they had gotten money from investors all over America and, and Britain, and they were expected to come back with these treasures and sell them for, I think the estimate was, I think I converted it to today's dollars about nearly $6 billion. So we're not talking about a spiritual quest here. This is about finding treasure. And that uh, event, so in 1911, after two years, they found nothing except for these bits of pottery. So Parker is desperate because his dig permit's about to expire. And he knows that there's a Jewish team uh, that's funded by Edmund de Rothschild that is about to start looking as well. So he knows he's got to find this damn ark. So what does he do? He bribes the head of the Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary, and convinces this guy to send the, the Muslim guards away. And at night he goes in, uh, and for a week he's digging in various places on top of the Acropolis, and finally 
finding nothing, he goes into the Dome of the Rock itself, you know, that great golden dome that we know that covers the rock that's sacred to Muslims because it's where Muhammad went on a mystical journey to heaven. For Jews, it's where the Holy of Holies may have been, uh, where on which the ark rested. He's convinced the ark lies below that. So he starts whacking away at this rock. He's discovered by a, a Muslim guard, and he has to hightail it out of town with his team. They managed to barely escape on their yacht that's docked uh, <laughs> in Yapa. And uh, it causes an international outcry. I mean, it's a hilarious story because it's so absurd, but it wasn't really that funny because what happened was the word got out that they had found Solomon's treasures. And so there were riots in Jerusalem. People were outraged that here are these heretic Christians who have violated one of Islam's most sacred sites, taking away treasures that didn't belong to them, and uh, and now have sailed away. And the British Empire was was really in danger at that point because that was a time when the Brit when the British controlled India. So you had tens of millions of Muslims who were outraged, and you also had the Ottoman government in Istanbul, which had been part of this. They had been bribed <laughs> to allow this to take place in the first place, and so the Ottoman government almost collapsed. But maybe the most important impact of this, what seems like a comic opera, is that it really inspired the Muslim Arabs in Jerusalem because they realized, hey, these Ottomans are not going to protect our holy site. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be us. And that's the core, the very beginning of Palestinian nationalism. And of course, that ripples out to our current century when the peace talks failed between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians in large part because of this argument over who owns this Acropolis. So you can see that the impact of, of archaeology, or I'll say exploration, uh, a century ago <laughs> still has this enormous in effect on Jerusalem today. I, I would just add to that. W wonderful. So interesting. Uh, I, I would just add to that is you talk about that time frame, 1911, 1912, 1913. Those of in our audience who aren't maybe having some historical background, some things happened right after that, you know, World War One. So this is a, a very important backdrop where all these players that we're talking about, uh, Britain, uh, Ottoman Empire, uh, they <laughs> This is something that was fresh on their minds as the world is engulfed in the in the First World War. And so you can see not only the local impact of how this has an impact upon the, the Palestinian-Israeli uh, issue, but it also had global uh, a global effect as well, which is something you also draw out. I, I would just add to um, your, your point, or just maybe kind of riff off this a little bit and say, it is so fascinating that the Ark becomes kind of this object in the 19th century because it's not like there weren't earlier fascinations. Of course, with the Crusades, you could point out the, the search for the Grail and the Templars and, and even to control the, the Tomb of Jesus, which if we're continuing in the Indiana Jones theme, that made up movie number three. Um, but it's, it's interesting that that would, would come out and, and, and kind of reemerge because if you read the both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this understanding that's implicit that it's that it's lost and no big deal. I mean, that's the idea of Ezekiel when you when you read Ezekiel eight through eleven, you see the spiritual manifestation of that's behind the Ark of the Covenant as the Spirit leaves the the holy place, goes to the Mount of Olives, and goes uh, with to exile with its people. And Jeremiah, they'll say we don't 
we're not going to ask anymore about where the Ark of the Covenant is in the age to come. And Revelation, you know, it's in the throne room of of God. And so it's it's something that in terms of both Jewish, late, late uh, for simple Jewish understanding, as well as Christian understanding, was kind of an open and closed uh, case that it's not something that is necessary for bringing about the eschaton. Uh, and, and yet, so how exactly it becomes this this uh, be-all, end-all sign for uh, both treasure and, um, and you know, bringing about the, the end of the world is, is just fascinating. And to see how until today it has driven uh, much of this discussion. Now, that's to say, if we were to find it, it would be certainly be interesting, but it's likely it's you probably have a bit of it in your smartphone uh, and, and other places because, as we all know, copper, other precious metals were melted down. Uh, in ancient times, and the Ark of the Covenant probably was one of those things that was melted down. Sorry to be a killjoy, uh, but that's that's the way thing that's the way things go. And so, uh, in any case, um, it, it's really interesting to see that 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 shift and how uh, these factors. One other thing point I wanted to make is it's also somewhat encouraging that you can trace, like when we think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's often talked about as something that's going on for millennia, and in some sense, there's never always been peaceful relationships um, in, in, in the Holy Land. But the immediate roots that you're discussing is, is relatively recent um, in, in, in the broader sweep of things. And so, um, and just seeing how much has changed in the perspectives of Israeli scholarship in the last, let's say, 30, 40 years. Um, and, and perhaps you might have something similar going on along the lines of in the Palestinian society. And so it, even, it leaves to me... I left kind of feeling hopeful about the possibility for changing perspectives down down the line um, once you can kind of recognize what the root cause of some of these issues are. Yeah, I, th- I think that when it comes to the ARC, I, I think the fascination with it was born out of the frustration by a generation of archaeologists and explorers who dug in Jerusalem and they didn't find much. People were expecting, you know, if you read about the Jerusalem of Solomon and David, you know, that there was, this is going to be a place filled with riches. I mean, Solomon is the byword for wealth, right? So I think there was this, this frustration that they hadn't been able to find good stuff. You were finding it in Egypt, you were finding it in Mesopotamia, you were finding it in Turkey. Where was it in Jerusalem? And so I think people just latched onto the ark as, as a treasure that surely must be there. That, that's something that everyone knows about. It's got to it's got to be there. So really it was the, the simple fact that Jerusalem was not the uh, the shining golden metropolis that it's portrayed as during the times of Solomon. And we know that archaeologically that, that almost certainly was, was a, a rewrite uh, later when the Bible was written much later. People were looking back on this golden age and they were looking at, at the, the wealthy places of, of that era and uh, the area they lived in and projecting that back onto the past. So I think that's what's happened with the Ark, is that it's people want to believe that <clears throat> these things exist, uh, even if the science says, well, not likely. Yeah. I, you know, I just, I had a, a thought as, as you guys have been chatting here, and Andrew, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on this from all of your, your research and everything. But, you know, the idea of looking at Jerusalem as kind of ground zero, even for the expectation of what archaeology is capable of. Because here you have these guys going off, and archaeology in the 19th century is 
brand new. I mean, really, they're just kind of figuring it out. You could say there's some early digs already in the, the 18th century, but really, it's this eye-opening process where you say, ah, there's things preserved in the ground that connect me to the past and that either are of great wealth or value or that can be utilized in some way for whatever gain. And Jerusalem becomes ground zero because of the Ark of the Covenant, because of the biblical traditions. And and you see today, I think, a, a certain continuation of this thread as well of what archaeology is about and what it's capable for. I think particularly amongst many Christian um, groups as well is that archaeology is going to prove the Bible, number one. It's going to find these amazing things. Again, maybe it's going to bring back the eschaton when we find these things. But, uh, you know, how – I don't know. What do you, uh, that's, I'm just kind of spitballing and, and thinking in in the process. But how do you see all these things connected? Or do you? What's what's unusual about archaeology in Jerusalem is that when you think of science in the 19th century, you think of religion on the one hand, and you think of Darwin and geology uh, undermining the the biblical, uh, the literal understanding of the Bible. Right? I mean, that this was the fundamental tension, particularly say in London, the time when the Palestine Exploration Fund was created in the 1860s. So, uh, what's what to me is so interesting about archaeology in Jerusalem is that you had people who were believers who were using the tools of science in order to show as best they could that the biblical text was actually correct. They were trying to beat back uh, the threats as they saw them to religion at the time. So that's what makes biblical archaeology, I mean, it's such an oxymoron in a sense. Uh, but to them, it wasn't. To them, it was, we're going to use the tools of science and we're going to show that what the Bible says is true. And of course, that can affect your findings. You know, if you're looking for what, <laughs> what you know to exist, then chances are you're going to find it. And that is a problem that has affected and afflicted uh, archaeology in Jerusalem uh, up until today. I mean, the, the find in 2005 by uh, archaeologist Elat Mazar of what she said was likely King David's palace was widely heralded around the world as finally we've discovered this. Uh, people uh, who were both Christians and Jews uh, were often very proud to say, see, this proves that the Jews were there at this early date. Uh, but in fact, when you get into the, the dirt of it, you see that it's it's a very controversial hypothesis that she puts forward. I mean, it's a, it's a theory based on data, but it's disputed by almost all of her colleagues. So, you know, in any other place, if you were in Thebes or if you were in Nineveh and you were arguing about uh, the date of something, you know, and was it was it 1000 BC versus you know 900 BC? Who cares? A few scholars will get really hot and bothered. But in Jerusalem, it makes international headlines. I mean. You, your listeners may have seen just uh, recently there was a uh, an article that that made the rounds in the international media about a toilet, twenty seven hundred year old toilet found. Now, why <laughs> is that news? Because it was in Jerusalem. <laughs> so that's where you know archaeology has been uh, used in Jerusalem uh, in a in a very particular way, and it continues to make it very difficult to uh, to do science in a way that is um, that is divorced from politics. In fact, I would argue that that no archaeology really is divorced from politics uh, and often with religion. And Jerusalem, that's just, uh, you know, that's always- Baked in. Case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you make such a great point about the, the irony 
of a kind of a backwater place, like whatever we think about 10th century Jerusalem or whatever, but I mean, even 8th century Jerusalem when Jerusalem is at its peak, it is absolutely nothing compared to the capitals of Assyria or even what was existing in a relatively weaker period in Egypt. And I think that's something that our, our audience would really appreciate thinking. If, if we go back to the 1840s and 1850s and 1860s, all these same countries have archaeologists that are digging up monumental palace. I mean, we're not talking about just small things like enormous things of the ancient world, Karnak Temple um, in, 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 in Egypt and in, in Luxor. And if you've never been, <laughs> you can't, you have, you need seven grown men to wrap your arms around one of these pillars in a hall of pillars that has over a uh, hundred pillars uh, in, in Egypt, I mean, in, in, um, in Assyria. I mean, when we're talking about Nineveh or Nimrud, ancient Kala, I mean, you are walking through a hall uh, with inscriptions, beautiful reliefs. And what's so fascinating is those civilizations basically are gone, coming down to us in uh, Greek mythology in some instances, coming down to us as uh, these stories that are essentially off the page, you know, off the, the the scope of history, whereas the biblical story lives on in, in the West. And so once those were discovered, and we didn't really know much about them anyway, um, <laughs> what, what are we going to find in, in, in Jerusalem? And it turns out that it, it's not as impressive. And in fact, if you read the Bible itself, Jerusalem itself is a much smaller entity. And so it's almost, it was almost set up to fail in terms of the, in terms of the perspective. Um, and, and so I just, that, that's always kind of the irony there is that a place that's, let, let's say if you were to compare it to 19th century England, London and Paris, uh, and then this is like a small place in Luxembourg or something. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a small, like the palaces of these place, but that having more of a cultural influence over thousands of years and and that really again speaks to how interesting and impressive the biblical text is, the Hebrew Bible, and, and the impact it's had upon culture, regardless if you accept it as a religious text or accept it just simply as part of the the human uh, human landscape of literature. And and again, it's something we need to keep kind of uh, comparing to. Um, but that, that's just a fascinating part. Uh, Andrew, I want to shift tact here. And I mean, well, I'm kind of continue along the same, but in looking at these stories that you bring out in your book, um, were there any, and, and to some regard, I think they're all kind of shocking, I think, to some, some modern sensibilities about the way things were done or the way that people interacted or treat others. But is there anything in particular as you were researching this book that, that really stood out to you as shocking or dismaying, just utterly nonsensical, you know, particularly in Jerusalem, where again, the, the archaeology and the, the everything about Jerusalem is in, in many regards a bit nonsensical, I think, for, for many people, even though there's, <laughs> it, it makes perfect sense to at, at the same time. Um, are there any stories, though, that you came across that just utterly, yeah, shocked you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the one that comes to mind is walking through the old city on a Saturday and seeing bags, these white bags filled with dirt, uh, waiting to be picked up uh, by the garbage collectors. And why Saturday? Well, it's a Sabbath. And so that's the day that the Israeli Antiquities Authority police aren't really policing the old city because it's the Jewish Sabbath. And this is when uh, the primarily the, the Arab uh, residents of the old city will bring up 
all the material that they've been digging out of their basements because they need more storage. They're trying to expand their cafe. They need to add a, you know, an, an extra room for a new kid, and they can't get permission from the Israeli authorities to really do much of anything, so they do it illegally. And as a result, uh, most of the digging that's going on in Jerusalem today is not done by the Israeli Antiquities Authority. It's done by the local residents because of the political divide, because they're terrified uh, of being discovered in doing this. They don't ask for permission because that would involve, uh, they know, probably a no. Hey, I want to expand my basement. No. Or if you want to do it, you've got to pay the Israeli Antiquities Authority a pretty you know, substantial fee in order for them to be there while you do this renovation. So this surprised me because it never really occurred to me that the politics is not just, uh, you know, something that is occasionally violent and is, uh, uh, you know, it's just like in the air. It also affects what's underground. So I think a large amount of data is being lost because the locals don't trust the archaeological authorities. And of course, that goes right back to our first dig. So it's not just a, an Israeli-Palestinian problem. It's actually part of a culture that that has its roots in Western Christians who went to Jerusalem and who didn't really care about those locals, as we said. They wanted to find the stuff that was below. They wanted to find the treasure and the proof of the Bible that was below the city. And what was above and the people actually living there were discounted. So unfortunately, it's it's a it's it's really tragic that that archaeology began in Jerusalem in that way and it continues uh, in a way that I think is you know, very destructive now. Yeah, we, we read stories about uh, these things or just it's the conflict between yeah, antiquity and modernity where people need to live their lives. They need to do things. And yet at the same time, how do you allow them to do that while preserving as much as possible the cultural historical past? And sometimes it's possible. Sometimes uh, opposite sides of the table can come to an agreement. And then other times, yeah, they don't or they don't even come to the table. And you know, as sometimes you they up. destroy the table. <laughs> sometimes they destroy the table. Yeah, and which which I think is largely the case in Jerusalem, oftentimes. But yeah, in archaeology, uh, more and more uh, in most parts of the world, people are learning. Uh, scholars are learning. You want to work with the locals because they're the people that live there. You want to have good relations. You want to learn from them because they may know things uh, that you don't know. They may be hiding things that they'd be happy to show you if they trust you. And also, they're the ones who will remain after the archaeologists have left. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a big movement in order to you know, really get the locals involved and act and feel like they're a part of what's going on, that it's their history, too. And unfortunately, in Jerusalem, this is definitely not the case uh, because it is so there is such a divide, uh, particularly between Israeli and Palestinians. I mean, even the question of these digs we're talking about in the old city uh, done by the Israeli Antiquities Authority, are they illegal? Well, under international law, they clearly are not. Israel argues they are because uh, they say we've annexed this part of uh, Jerusalem, therefore it is part of Israel. But everyone else pretty much in the world says, well, no, it's occupied territory. You don't dig in somebody else's backyard without the permission. So, you know, you can see that even doing science, I mean, even doing a dig, even if you have funding from, you know, uh, a non-political organization, if you're digging there, then you're going to uh, face potentially a lot of criticism. Tel Aviv University got involved with the Gavati dig just south of the uh, city's Acropolis, 
and was you know, criticized by many uh, archaeologists around the world for, for illegally digging. Uh, they argue, no, it's part of Israel, so it's okay. So, so it's really hard to do archaeology in Jerusalem because you've got to deal with these complicated ethical issues. Uh, are you going to work with a local community? Chances are you're not because of the politics. And, and that's, that's, again, <clears throat> but um, one can hope that that can shift. And as the world begins to see archaeology differently, maybe that will filter into what happens in Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah, I think well, I think you you bring out some some really impress like important points here is like even if you're thinking about uh, Tel Aviv, uh, Tel Aviv University as an institution in Israel that would if you're talking about like Israeli politics more on the left than on the right, the fact that it would be invested in uh, the Givati excavations or anywhere in the city of David, um, it to- it shows you the complex nature of this. And there's another question is if these excavations are going to happen anyway, whether you were there or not, wouldn't you want the the best um, archaeologist out there to preserve the data? And it's it's this constant back and forth between these questions, which I, I think even until today makes it very interesting. And, and one of the one of the thing, other things I really wanted to commend you on is um, growing up and studying Jerusalem and having a really interest in, you know, even modern Israeli, modern Israel's history. Um, it was so fascinating to see the generational shifts in the way Israeli scholars thought about, let's talk about places like the um, Southern Temple excavations with Benjamin Mazar and other places until today. And so you you were able to, to really bring this out and show that a clear transition has happened between an older and maybe even two generations of scholars since the, the 19, late 1940s or in, in 1950s until where we are today. Um, and that's not to say there aren't lingering um, views that continue uh, among Israeli scholars, but that type of shift has happened uh, very clearly among uh, among Israeli scholars, and one can hope that it can uh, that it can spread uh, to other parts of of, of 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 Jerusalem and the larger the larger society to see archaeology as um, really archaeologists are servants. I mean, uh, at, at a root level, it's not our stuff. It belongs to humanity, um, and, and so that's at, at the at the heart of what an archaeologist's job is: is to preserve this information so that everyone can benefit from learning and knowing about it. And and that I think has made lots of headway in Israel, uh, less so in other, in other parts. Uh, but I think you draw that 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 out quite quite nicely. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a it's a it's a really difficult issue, particularly for archaeologists to talk about because. In my experience, they tend to think of themselves as, hey, I'm just doing science. It's all about my method. If I'm doing the method correctly, then everything's fine. And I have great respect for the Israeli Antiquities Authority and Tel Aviv University and Hebrew University people who are digging in Jerusalem because they are you know, often very top-notch. They're, they work really, really hard. I saw that myself. You know, and it's, it's just a, it's, it's an ethical quagmire there because you have to ask bigger questions. You know, who is funding me? What are they going to do with my data uh, after I've done this? And I talked to some archaeologists said, it's not my business. Uh, my job is to dig it. And then afterwards, I can't control it. And I have to say, I think that's a rather naive perspective. And I think that that, uh, that makes you a servant rather than uh, something more. Uh, and that is, I think archaeologists have a responsibility to be clear on their ethics and to provide context for what they found and to uh, 
fight back if they feel like their data is being misused uh, in a way that can harm others. And that clearly has been the case over and over again in Jerusalem. So I think it's a it's certainly a, a test tube for a lot of the ethical uh, issues that confront archaeology as a whole today. Yeah, and you you have a great example of of this this kind of ethical um, quagmire, as you say, in in your book. Where, if I remember correctly, it was in the excavations of this monumental staircase coming up the Tyropean Valley, and they found this um, church, kind of Byzantine church, and the uh, or certain individuals wanted to just destroy it, and the archaeologists said, "No, we're not going to, because we have a responsibility to preserve." more than just one specific time period in this context for this. And yeah, that has to be, I can only imagine such a challenging thing to do in this context as an archaeologist, because particularly the guys working today in, in Jerusalem, it's not like you wake up in the morning as an archaeologist and say, I would love to go dig in the one site in the world where everybody's going to disagree and hate you and argue about every single thing you do and raise questions about your ethical ability, your, your archaeological ability. I mean, nobody wakes up and says that, but there are very practical questions that are pr practical things that will probably factor into an archaeologist decision to work there, such as, hey, this is Jerusalem, number one, who doesn't want to dig there? Number two, you know, this is a great opportunity, particularly with the IAA, to have a big project that could open additional doors in the future or that could, again, preserve the material that we know is there that is going to be excavated whether we're doing it or not. And so it brings it down to a very personal level, I think, that, you know, Archaeologists do have to grapple with with these questions, but there are any number of variables that are going to weigh whether or not you view it acceptable or, or unacceptable, particularly in, in Jerusalem. Fortunately, Chris and I don't work there. We don't have, I think, as many of these these issues with the sites where, where we work, but it's still something that all archaeologists need to to factor in. I mean, there has to be a level of of ethical control as well as scientific control to what we're doing. Um, because again, it it's not ours. It, I don't get to take any of it home and just keep it for myself. It belongs to to everyone. And I think archaeologists sell themselves short. I mean, I think they don't necessarily understand how much respect they get in the wider world. People love archaeology. I mean, it's a you know, it's not like you're you're building weapons or something that's controversial. You're doing something that that most people can say fundamentally that's a that's a useful you know humanistic endeavor. Uh, so that is that gives archaeologists, I think, uh, some cred, some street cred that a lot of other scientists don't have. And I think archaeologists can speak up. I think they can organize. I think they can have a voice, and they can say no when somebody says, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna take down that Byzantine church." And in that particular example, you know, there was a compromise. They took out a few stones, but left you know left some of it. So it you know you have to compromise. I recognize that. Uh, yet, I think archaeologists do often believe that they don't have power, that they're just, you know, doing a job that, you know, they're subject to their funders. And But I think that they've got the power of the press. And people like me would love to write a story about an archaeologist who, who says, wait a second, my data is being misused. I mean, that is what's needed is people willing to, to have a voice. I think it's such a great point. And I, what I, I'm often frustrated by is... Uh, it's particularly on like the Western side of things. Like if we're thinking about different organizations and things, it's, it's just, it, they, they put 
red tape all around um, the issue to the point where you can't even really address it. And so in terms of digging in Jerusalem, digging in the West Bank and, and these types of things, and and I, I think that you you make a great point that the, these issues need to be dealt with. We can't just throw our hands up and say, it's too complicated. I can't, I can't mess with it. Otherwise, it will be completely destroyed. Uh, or you, you have uh, other factors in there that will do it for their own ends. And so uh, I, I think that the charge you give um, to archaeologists to, to use wisdom and, and to try and, and lead the narrative on a lot of these things is, is, is a great thing. And uh, what an apt thing, you know, if we think about this city, you know, Solomon said, divide up the baby. Um, and, you know, that, that, that classic wisdom statement you have to have, uh, even in these, even in, even in these issues. So, uh, well, I have a question, one question. What, what are you working on next? What's the next, what's the next project? Do you have anything? I'm going to be heading to back to Jerusalem shortly. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, I've got a, a magazine story I'll be working on there, uh, about, uh, Oh, I'll just say it's a very interesting topic, so stay tuned. Okay, okay. Well, you're welcome to come back and discuss it. Absolutely. Give me about a year or so to, to get it under my belt. And then I'm working on other things uh, closer to home since uh, traveling overseas and in these times has been challenging. So I thought that there's plenty in American history that uh, that could be dug up, as it were. <laughs> well, Very let cool. me let me ask one last question myself, Andrew, before we go, and maybe you can just summarize for us, you know, because you you have you know looked at archaeology, not only of Jerusalem, the Middle East, around the world. In in your experience, you know, what is it about archaeology that appeals so broadly to people all over the world? I think there's an innate fascination with with our ancestors. Where did we come from? What are our origins? And you know, as we've gotten away from our rural roots, you know, from our hunter-gathering roots and living in villages, I think we feel disconnected from, from our past often. You know, people have moved distances, you know, they, they, they're no longer living with family, they no longer have that kind of inbuilt heritage that made it unnecessary to dig. That was one of the interesting things about Jerusalem was that among many of the Arabs I spoke with, they couldn't understand archaeology because they said, you are your heritage. You are your heritage. Why do you have to go look for it? This is a Western concept. I would say it's a, a result of us moving to cities and leading, leading lives quite different from our ancestors. So I think archaeology answers that need, that need to reconnect with who we were and therefore who we are. Because once we understand where we came from, of course, then we can feel grounded and, and uh, feel, I think, a little bit easier in our complicated, modern, industrial lives. So I think archaeology came about at that very time in history when we needed to be reminded of our past. We needed to to know that we are part of a line of of people, whether it's a whether it's a tribe or a group or a religion or what have you, in order to to fully uh, inhabit ourselves, to to really uh, be able to identify with uh, with the past and therefore with our present. So I think it's an absolutely vital uh, aspect to um, to being human. Well, Andrew, thank you. This has been so so much fun. So much uh, just. <laughs> 
enjoyment talking about you know Jerusalem and all its aspects here. And we could, you know, Chris and I could keep this conversation going with you for much, much longer, but we recognize that we should probably stop now. Um, so we want to thank you, number one, for coming on here and, and talking about this. Again, your new book is Under Jerusalem, The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City. We'll put a link up on the uh, the podcast page for those that are interested in checking it out. And again, uh, we, Chris and I both highly recommend it. Um, and you also have, there's a, a link on your webpage, I believe, that has a few additional photos uh, as well. So people can check some of those out um, because... You know, it's always fun to see some of these places that probably you're not going to get to access. So, um, so Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, we greatly appreciate uh, chatting with you today. Thank and you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Definitely. Really enjoyed it. So Unscript listeners, thank you for tuning in. And this is all for this podcast. We will be back next time. Until then, keep on digging. You've been listening to Onscript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.